Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. It's August, and I'm happy to say that we've been focusing on an outstanding piece by Matthew Desmond that was originally published in the New York Times Magazine in April. It's called Why Poverty Persists in America, and it's an excerpt from his new book, Poverty by America. Fellow article clubber Melinda and I got a chance to interview Professor Desmond a few weeks back, and it was truly an honor. I won't give too much away because it's better to listen, but we discussed a number of topics, including how poverty is about a lack of choices, not just money, how exploitation is at the center of poverty, and what it means to be a poverty abolitionist. Most of all, Professor Desmond wants us to do something about the issue, not just talk about it not just be what he calls informed and sophisticated and passive. So if this interests you, I invite you to our discussion of the article on Sunday, August 27th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. All you need to do is email me at mark at articleclub.org. All right, let's get to the interview. Matthew Desmond, thank you so much for doing Article Club. Pleasure to be here. We have tons of questions, Melinda, I, and also the other folks in Article Club. And the first question, Melinda, you've got, go for it. Yeah, you know, Matthew, what struck me about the article is that you're able to kind of pinpoint people's perceptions about poverty and kind of the biases that we have, but you're also inviting people in to be part of the change. So I'm kind of wondering, like, how do you strike a balance in form with like informing readers, knowing their bias, but then also opening up the space for them to be part of the change and like avoiding any kind of blame, even though we're all complicit in, you know, systems of oppression when it comes to poverty. I think that, I think that you want to trust the reader a bit, you know, and I think you want to trust the reader to stretch for those higher values to use James Baldwin's phrase. And I think that is one of the reasons why I use a lot of we and us language in this book. And, you know, it's always risky to use that kind of language. But, you know, my bet with the universe was if we could make this about a collective movement and kind of about a collective identity, I think that would be in, inviting, you know, wrapping on the chalkboard or lecturing. That's that's not really a way to move hearts and minds. And so I I, I, I went down that, that road. And I think that another responsibility I felt that I had is to try to paint a picture of what a what an America without poverty would look like, you know, and make it enticing in something that we want to strive for and sacrifice for, you know, for a country that's safer and freer and less compromised. And so I think that that's part of the, that was part of the effort too, not to just make the case on on moral grounds or sociological grounds, but also just to make it really as a work of imagination and projection. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like now that I think about it, thinking back at the article and I've read the book too, that it is very much like a communal tone and it's kind of subtle in that way, but it's very effective. So I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. We, and also like, you know, we read the piece first in the New York times magazine, but also have read the book. And it was really interesting how you, it seemed like you toggle back and forth between the we, but then also pointing at, say, a stereotypical New York Times magazine reader of like a a white, affluent, progressive who has like this idea of wanting to do something about poverty, but also wanting to maybe hoard resources. And so just trying to figure out like, how did you figure out who your reader might be, how to talk to them, how to write about them? And sort of how to like navigate that. 
I think the we is fluid in the work. You know, so the we isn't always addressing someone of a certain class background. You know, it kind of, it's it switches and moves depending on what I'm trying to do in a paragraph or a passage. I think that part of my audience always is holding myself accountable to folks that I know and love below the poverty line too. And so one of the questions I had when writing this book was, you know, if we use a we that's addressed to an affluent audience in one paragraph, are they going to feel left out? And I think that, you know, I think that I thought that the benefit you get from trying to write in a more communal way would be something that my friends and family that are struggling could live with, you know, and kind of get it. And I think that that's been true. I think the response has been, has, has borne that out. I think that, again, many of us who have found economic security in the country and prosperity we're also pining for something different. And we feel the emotional violence that we often do to ourselves when we participate in these relationships of extraction and exploitation. And the book is not a everybody wins argument, right? The book is very clear that some of us who have plenty already need to take less from the government for us to abolish poverty. But what we get in that trade-off is a better country. And I think that many of us, even those of us that are hoarding those resources, want that because we're hoarding often because of that, right? Because of the fear that poverty brings, the fear that, you know, in the in this kind of country, the land of the free, like you could ascend to high heights, but you could drop to the deepest depths as well. And I think that many folks would relish the opportunity to let go of that fear. Yeah, it seems like you do paint the picture and you also want to believe in everybody, especially maybe those who may want to protect their affluence. I really appreciated how you did sort of balance, you know, with regard the moral aspect versus the, this actually would make our country better. But at some point in the middle, I was sort of asking myself, what does he think about the folks who really are selfish and who don't actually care? What would he say, you know, about that? And it seems like you consider that, but you also don't want to consider that. Is that true? I don't find it useful and I don't find despair useful. And so I think that I want us to evaluate our lives and our investment decisions and our consumption choices and how we're voting and our commitment to the anti-poverty movements. And I know everyone listening has that one uncle or that one dad or that one cousin, or that one brother or that one political party or that one elected official that, man, what about them? It's not about them. You know, it's about us. And I think that if we made more of an effort, that would be something. That would be quite a lot. And so I think that I'm so tired of absolving theories of poverty. And and I think that these theories exist all over the political spectrum. And this book is an attempt to really try to get us to take personal responsibility for all this poverty in our midst. And so that audience, that group that you're talking about, I don't deny their existence. And I am not naive about the the heavy lift that we're taking. But I, I do feel like I'm a pragmatic writer in a way. You know, I want my, my work to do things. And I think that that, you know, that means certain calculations, I guess, decisions. 
one of the early parts of the article and also in the book that struck me is when you discuss how there's federal programmings that are anti-poverty, but then states will earmark those dollars for programs that have nothing to do with poverty, like how the temporary assistance for family for need, needy families that was created by President Clinton. Arizona took some of that money for abstinence-only sex education. Maine took that to you to fund like Christian summer camp. To me, that was really shocking. Like how these examples of, you know, like to for me, I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but like that feels very corrupt to do to move this money to causes that are not for anti-poverty programming. And I I thought like each of those things that you listed are headlines, like in and of themselves. Why do you think there aren't like huge media stories about like each of those things or just like poverty in general? We had a big media story this year about them, especially about Mississippi. And the reporter that really dug into that story just won a Pulitzer and deserves it. And it showed the incredible welfare fraud that was happening on behalf of the state of Mississippi, where they paid Brett Favre millions of dollars to give speeches he never gave. He gave that money back. But they they paid a ex-professional wrestler you know, a lot of money. They use it to build a, a volleyball court at a college. And and so we did get a big story, but, you know, Mississippi is extreme in this amount, but this is normal business in America, right? And it's not a red state, blue state issue. Hawaii is sitting on so many unspent welfare dollars, they can give every poor kid in their state $10,000, you know, that's the bluest state in the nation. And so I think that, I think that it, it does deserve a lot more attention than it's getting. But I also think that so many Americans are hungry for this story. You know, I I gave I gave a book doc in Nashville to launch the book and someone drove like 11 hours. I gave a I gave a talk in LA, someone flew from Milwaukee and I was like I'm going to be in Chicago next week. <laughs> you going to say but and I don't think that has anything to do with me. You know, I think it's about there's a lot of folks that that want a different story that are tired of the old myths about poverty in America. Yeah, I definitely, especially now, I think like a lot of discourse of trying to like uncover just like corruption, especially at like government levels, it feels like such an on point thing to bring into the discourse. Yeah, it's a good point. Another part of the piece, as well as your book, that I feel is at the core is around this this idea of exploitation. And when you introduce it, it feels like to the reader, you're you're trying to, you, you name that it's sort of like could be seen by the reader as something that is a tough word to sort of take in, but then you define it in a more cool-headed way and wanted to know more about this piece about exploitation and how central it is to your argument. Well, I just feel that, and I felt for a long time that the theories of poverty, both on the right and the left in the country, share one thing in common, which is that it's no one's fault. You know, there's no one that's profiting from poverty. And I just, that just didn't jive with my experience at all. You know, when I wrote my last book, Evicted, I I moved into a mobile home park. And one of the first questions I had was like, why would, why would you buy a mobile home park? You know, why would that be an investment that you made? And, um, then the landlord opened up his books to me and I calculated his bottom line, which by my calculation was $400,000 a year after expenses, you know, and his tenants were like collecting cans to make rent, you know, and, and on disability. So that was a real eye opener to me. And I think that was 
that forced me to recognize, you know, there are winners and losers, and often there are winners because there are losers. And I think that we have to talk about exploitation if we're going to get serious about talking about the root causes of poverty in America. And you're right. Like when you do introduce that term, it's triggering. Uh, and I think that I felt that as a writer, I wanted to say, look, I know you guys are triggered by this word, but like, it's just like you've been exploited. I've been exploited. We've all kind of been in these places where like, you know, you got no other choice. You got to take the the worst, you know, you got, you, you take a bad deal because that's the only deal on the table. And for the poor, that's their life. You know, that's their life. And I think that recognizing exploitation of the labor market and housing market and the financial market recognizes that poverty is not just about a lack of money. It's about a lack of choice and being taken advantage of because of that. And I think that's not a controversial statement when you put it like that. And so my job, I felt like on the page was to move from a place where people might be like, are you a Marxist, you know, to a place where like, yeah, well, I've been there too. Yeah, I can see how that, you know, and try to, you know, try to broaden the tent of people that kind of come around this idea. Well, yeah, I mean, I read that part about the Marxist part too, yeah, about how some person came up to you and said, are you a Marxist? And yeah. um, But the the quote that sticks with me is a bad deal for you is a good deal for me. And like, I fundamentally feel that but I also see all these people who want to believe in the American dream and capitalism or whatever saying, no, like, the, like we don't have to have that binary sort of thing. And I just feel like that you're painting a picture for the reader to sort of like say, no, that's actually how it is. And not just for poor people, but for all of us. Yeah, I just think the evidence is on my side on this one. You know, the time where we were the most economically equitable country in modern history, that was the 70s, you know, and unions were strong. One in three workers belonged to a union. Wages were climbing. You know, if you worked for Ford, Ford signed your paycheck. You know, you could advance in the company and, and expect your salary to go up. You had some benefits, but as workers lost power, our jobs got a lot worse. And now wages for a non-college educated man, for example, are less than they would be 50 years ago, inflation adjusted. That isn't just about like credentialing. You know, in fact, the country's got a lot more educated and a lot more unequal at the same time. So that's not about like a so-called skills mismatch or credentialing or not only about that. It's about power. And I think that, you know, that's that's got to be central to our story. I'm kind of going back to the community aspect of how you write after reading the article and also your book. One of the things that kept coming up for me was, okay, like I want to open this discussion up like in my community. It's like, I want to have like discussions about poverty, especially as a topic that you talk about, right? Like we, we don't want to talk about it. We try to ignore it. And something I found in the article that was really powerful is that you're not coming from like one political side. You're not making this a political argument, even though of course, poverty has been like taken by both sides and is part of their messaging. I'm wondering what we can learn as readers from your writing. Like, how do we open up those discussions in our own communities? How can we make it a space where we want to take action and we're not, you know, trying to step on people's toes politically in a way that people don't listen to us or don't even want to have that conversation? All right. I love this question. I, I think that we can do five things. I'm going to okay. give you five tangible things. Okay. Sorry to be that guy, but. No, I love, I, I love that. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Number one, we all have influence somewhere, right? You guys got a podcast. Maybe someone's sitting on a school board or they're a faith leader in their church or, 
you know, I belong to a university. I got a little influence here. You know, I could be asking, what are we paying our landscapers? You know, what are we invested in? And so flex your influence where you have it on behalf of poverty abolitionism. Number two, we can shop and, and invest differently. You know, we all kind of know what kind of coffee to drink or shoes to buy to signal that we're this kind of person. But like, you know, we're often not buying and investing according to our economic justice values. We should. And so, you know, that's a subtle way to change these conversations. Like, where'd you get that shirt? Oh, like, this is like a, I found this cool company through B Corp, which ranks companies based on their environmental and social ethics. And this is like a worker owned company. They make awesome stuff. You should check it out. See how that's like a different kind of way of approaching it than like pulling out the PowerPoint slide and like, you know, and so I think like we can do that. We can, t number three, we can talk about taxes differently. And I think so many of us left, right and center, you know, you just lean over the fence and or out their article or and your neighbor just like, man, taxes, taxes, you know, but what if like, you know, for those of us who are homeowners, for example, you know, next time someone did that, we were like, you were like. Yeah, I know. You know, it's insane. I get a mortgage interest deduction for my house and I don't need it. And, um, you know, I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over it, but like we're evicting like millions of families every year, you know? And so I donated my mortgage interest deduction to my local eviction defense. And I wrote my congressperson saying they should peel it back. Now that's a different kind of conversation with the fence. That's a little more awkward conversation, but that's kind of how we change the common sense. I think four, we can go to zoning board meetings. Oh, and we can haul our butts down at Tuesday night at 8 p.m. and stand up and be like, look, I want you to build this. Like this community's longstanding tradition of segregation and denial of opportunity to families. I want it to end with me. You know, I'm 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 reaching for a different kind of community here because the segregationists show up and they yell at the aldermen and they gum up the process. And I think that if we want to tear down the walls, we got to show up too. And then the fifth, the last, we can join an anti-poverty organization. You know, we can we can pitch in. And if you want to know where to start, I have a website for you. We launched a website called endpovertyusa.org. And you can find anti-poverty organizations putting in the work in your community or at the national level. I love that. I especially love the the like subtle one about, you know, I bought the shirt. B Corps told me where to go. Cause that's like a fun, that's like fun, right? That's like yeah, almost an right. interesting and exciting way of talking about like abolishing poverty. Right. It's like make exploitation uncool again. You know, yeah. like it's kind of like it's not about like actually, you know, it's like we don't want to have a debate about this. Mm -hmm. We want to make it like smoking. Like, you know, when I was in college, you could smoke. Everyone smoked at parties. And then, you know, pretty soon it was just, if you lit up, people would be like, ew. And like, wouldn't it be great if that's how we treated poverty? Like, it was like, you know, you're like, I don't, I don't want that affordable housing development in the community. Do you? And you're like, ew, of course I do. Like, of course. And so I think that it's easier to change norms than beliefs. That's what social psychology shows. And so, you know, we see this with environmentalism. We see like, you know, I'm going to put those solar panels on my house after Cheryl does, you know? And so I think that like, that allows us to act on beliefs that we already have. And the more that we can be like, check out the shirt or like, I bought this beer because the union's made, you know, or whatever. I think that that matters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea of like, we can make it almost like stylish and fun and like be the in crowd because we're like we're abolishing poverty. I'm a poverty abolitionist. This is yeah. who I am. This is a, okay. what is that? What does that mean? Well, this is how we kind of, I try to live out my life and I'm not perfect. I make every decision perfectly on this, right? Like, but I'm, I'm making an effort. And I think that that kind of approach to it is inviting in a way. I agree.
Yeah, the difference between going to the meeting and then not going to the meeting or going to the meeting or saying you should go to the meeting or just like, I like the idea because a lot of this stuff always is, oh, what's the right way to do stuff? And it sounds like you're like, no, let's just do something about it. Let's keep in the conversation and uh, talk about this like more honestly, I feel. Yeah, I feel like the right way to do stuff is to do stuff. And I feel like when I hang out with anti-poverty organizations, this is a warm-hearted, open space, you know, and folks will hold you accountable for stuff, but they'll do it in a loving way. And so I don't really recognize kind of a this like character of like sharp elbows and cancel culture among anti-poverty groups. You know, what I recognize is folks trying out different things and gosh, they need more of us. You know, the tent really has to grow. And so I think that among progressive America, there is a informed sophisticated passivity. And I think that, I think you're right. I think that we need to start start acting in, in ways that are in community, that are informed by these organizations that are led by folks down the line and in solidarity with them. But I think we do have to start acting and, and not not just talking and, and then doing the big sigh, man, phew, yeah, you know, <laughs> I wish Congress looked different. Yeah, you know. And so I take a lot of heart from um, a book called the Fierce Urgency of Now, which is by Julian Zelizer. And he writes about Congress being completely polarized and divided in the 60s, you know, filibustering reform, blocking progressive legislation. And in that midst, we got massive pieces of civil rights legislation. We got the war on poverty and the great society. And if so much was accomplished in a situation where Congress looked a lot like it does today, it was because people acted, right? Like the labor movements and the civil rights movement put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. And I'm so grateful that those folks didn't like look at Congress or look at the Supreme Court and just be like, man, I wish it looked differently. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matthew, for doing this. Thanks for your piece. Thanks for your book. Thanks for making the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. So look forward to those cool B Corps certified union shirts the next time we yeah. talk. Great. Thank All you right. so much. Thanks. Bye. I want to thank Matthew Desmond yet again for coming on to Article Club. It was really, really generous of you. So thank you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts about your piece and also your book with us over at Article Club. I really, really appreciate it, especially at the end when Professor Desmond was really just encouraging us to do things. It doesn't really matter exactly what we do, but actually, let's get in there. Let's talk about it. Let's be authentic and let's try things out to shift the conversation. And so if you're interested in this conversation or in the article, it would be really great to have you over the discussion. There's still a few slots left. We're going to be meeting on August 27th, um, Sunday, August 27th at 2 p.m. It's going to be from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. And the way that you sign up at this point is just send me an email at mark at articleclub.org. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great weekend and see you next time.